Chapter 8 Continued The work, already carried out in the Bose laboratory on the response of matter and the unexpected revelations in plant life, have opened out very extended regions of inquiry in physics, in physiology, in medicine, in agriculture, and even in psychology. Problems hitherto regarded as insoluble have now been brought within the sphere of experimental investigation. But high success is not to be obtained without rigid exactitude. Hence the long battery of supersensitive instruments and apparatus of my design, which stand before you today in their cases in the entrance hall. They tell you of the protracted efforts to get behind the deceptive seeming into the reality that remains unseen of the continuous toil and persistence and resourcefulness called forth to overcome human limitations. All creative scientists know that the true laboratory is the mind, where behind illusions they uncover the laws of truth. The lectures given here will not be mere repetitions of second-hand knowledge. They will announce new discoveries demonstrated for the first time in these halls. Through regular publication of the work of the Institute, these Indian contributions will reach the whole world. They will become public property. No patents will ever be taken. The spirit of our national culture demands that we should forever be free from the desecration of utilizing knowledge only for personal gain. It is my further wish that the facilities of this institute be available so far as possible to workers from all countries. In this, I am attempting to carry on the traditions of my country. As far back as 25 centuries, India welcomed to its ancient universities at Nalanda and Taxila scholars from all parts of the world. Although science is neither of the East nor of the West, but rather international, in its universality, yet India is specially fitted to make great contributions. The burning Indian imagination, which can extort new order out of a mass of apparently contradictory facts, is held in check by the habit of concentration. This restraint confers the power to hold the mind to the pursuit of truth with an infinite patience. Tears stood in my eyes at the scientist's concluding words. Is patience not indeed a synonym of India, confounding time and the historians alike? I visited the research centre again soon after the day of opening. The great botanist, mindful of his promise, took me to his quiet laboratory. I will attach the Kreska graph to this firm. The magnification is tremendous. If a snail's crawl were enlarged in the same proportion, the creature would appear to be travelling like an express train. My gaze was fixed eagerly on the screen, which reflected the magnified fern shadow. Minute life movements were now clearly perceptible. The plant was growing very slowly before my fascinated eyes. The scientist touched the tip of the fern with a small metal bar. The developing pantomime came to an abrupt halt, resuming its eloquent rhythms as soon as the rod was withdrawn. You saw how any slight outside interference is detrimental to the sensitive tissues, Bost remarked. Watch, 
I will now administer chloroform and then give an antidote. The effect of the chloroform discontinued all growth. The antidote was revivifying. The evolutionary gestures on the screen held me more rapidly than a movie plot. My companion, here in the role of villain, thrust a sharp instrument through a part of the fern. Pain was indicated by spasmodic flutters. When he passed a razor partially through the stem, the shadow was violently agitated, then stilled itself with the final punctuation of death. By first chloroforming a huge tree, I achieved a successful transplantation. Usually such monarchs of the forest die very quickly after being moved. Jagadis smiled happily as he recounted the life-saving manoeuvre. Grafts of my delicate apparatus have proved that trees possess a circulatory system. Their sap movements correspond to the blood pressure of animal bodies. The ascent of sap is not explicable on the mechanical grounds ordinarily advanced, such as capillary attraction. The phenomenon has been revealed through the crescograph as the activity of living cells. Peristaltic waves issue from a cylindrical tube which extends down a tree and serves as an actual heart. The more deeply we perceive, the more striking becomes the evidence that a uniform plan links every form in manifold nature. The great scientist pointed to another Bose instrument. I will show you experiments on a piece of tin. The life force in metals responds adversely or beneficially to stimuli. Ink markings will register the various reactions. Deeply engrossed, I watched the graph which recorded the characteristic waves of atomic structure. When the professor applied chloroform to the tin, the vibratory writings stopped. They recommenced as the metal slowly regained its normal state. My companion dispensed a poisonous chemical. Simultaneously, with the quivering end of the tin, the needle dramatically wrote on the chart a death notice. The scientist said, Both instruments have demonstrated that metals, such as the steel used in scissors and machinery, are subject to fatigue and regain efficiency by periodic rest. The life pulse in metals is seriously harmed or even extinguished through the application of electric currents or heavy pressure. I looked around the room at the numerous inventions, eloquent testimony of a tireless ingenuity. Sir, it is lamentable that mass agricultural development is not speeded by a fuller use of your marvellous mechanisms. Would it not be easily possible to employ some of them in quick laboratory experiments to indicate the influence of various types of fertilizers on plant growth? You are right. Countless uses of both instruments will be made by future generations. The scientist seldom knows contemporaneous reward. It is enough to possess the joy of creative service. With expressions of unreserved gratitude to the indefatigable sage, I took my leave. Can the astonishing fertility of his genius ever be exhausted, I thought. No diminution came with the years. Inventing an intricate instrument, the resonant cardiograph, Bos then pursued extensive researches on innumerable Indian plants. An enormous unsuspected pharmacopoeia of useful drugs was revealed. The cardiograph 
is constructed with unerring accuracy by which a one-hundredth part of a second is indicated on a graph. Resonant records measure infinitesimal pulsations in plant, animal and human structure. The great botanist predicted that use of his cardiograph will lead to vivisection on plants instead of animals. Side-by-side -side recordings of the effects of a medicine given simultaneously to a plant and an animal have shown astounding unanimity in result, he pointed out. Everything in man has been foreshadowed in the plant. Experimentation on vegetation will contribute to the lessening of animal and human suffering. Years later, Bose's pioneer plant findings were substantiated by other scientists. Work done in 1938 at Columbia University was reported by the New York Times as follows. It has been determined within the past few years that when the nerves transmit messages between the brain and other parts of the body, tiny electrical impulses are being generated. These impulses have been measured by delicate galvanometers and magnified millions of times by modern amplifying apparatus. Until now, no satisfactory method has been found to study the passage of the impulses along the nerve fibers in living animals or man because of the great speed with which these impulses travel. Doctors K.S. Cole and H.J. Curtis reported having discovered that the long, single cells of the freshwater plant Nitella, used frequently in goldfish bowls, are virtually identical with those of single nerve fibers. Furthermore, they found that Nutella fibers, on being excited, propagate electrical waves that are similar in every way, except velocity, to those of the nerve fibers in animals and man. The electrical nerve impulses in the plant were found to be much slower than those in animals. This discovery was therefore seized upon by the Columbia workers as a means for taking slow-motion pictures of the passage of the electrical impulses in nerves. The Nutella plant thus may become a sort of Rosetta Stone for deciphering the closely guarded secrets close to the very borderland of mind and matter. The poet Rabindranath Tagore was a stalwart friend of India's idealistic scientist. To him, the sweet Bengali singer addressed the following lines. O hermit, call thou in the authentic words of that old hymn called Sama, Rise, awake, call to the man who boasts his shastric law, from vain pedantic wranglings, profitless, call to that foolish braggart to come forth, out on the face of nature, this broad earth, send forth this call unto thy scholar band, Together, round thy sacrifice of fire, let them all gather. So may our India, our ancient land, unto herself return, oh, once again return to steadfast work, to duty and devotion, to her trance of earnest meditation. Let her sit once more unruffled, greedless, strifeless, pure. Oh, once again, upon her lofty seat and platform, teacher of all lands. Chapter 9 The Blissful Devotee and His Cosmic Romance 
Little sir, please be seated. I am talking to my divine mother. Silently, I had entered the room in great awe. The angelic appearance of Master Mahasha fairly dazzled me. With silky white beard and large lustrous eyes, he seemed an incarnation of purity. His upraised chin and folded hands apprised me that my first visit had disturbed him in the midst of his devotions. His simple words of greeting produced the most violent effect my nature had so far experienced. The bitterness of separation at my mother's death I had thought the measure of all anguish. Now a consciousness of separation from my divine mother was an indescribable torture of the spirit. I fell moaning to the floor. Little sir, quiet yourself. The saint was sympathetically distressed. Abandoned in some oceanic desolation, I clutched his feet as the cell raft of my rescue. Holy sir, thine intercession, ask divine mother if I find any favour in her sight. The sacred promise of intercession is one not easily bestowed. The master was constrained to silence. Beyond reach of doubt, I was convinced that Master Mahasha was in intimate converse with the Universal Mother. It was deep humiliation to realize that my eyes were blind to her, who even at this moment was perceptible to the faultless gaze of the saint. Shamelessly gripping his feet, deaf to his gentle remonstrances, I besought him again and again for his intervening grace. I will make your plea to the Beloved, the Master's capitulation came with a slow, compassionate smile. What power, in those few words, that my being should now release from its stormy exile. Sir, remember your pledge. I shall return soon for her message. Joyful anticipation rang in my voice, which only a moment ago had been sobbingly choked with sorrow. Descending the long stairway, I was overwhelmed by memories. This house, in Calcutta, at 50 Amherst Street, now the residence of Master Mahashaya, had once been my family home, the scene of my mother's death. Here my human heart had broken for the vanished mother, and here, today, my spirit had been as though crucified by the absence of the Divine Mother. Hallowed walls, silent witness of my grievous hurts and final healing. My steps were eager as I returned to my home. Seeking the seclusion of my small attic, I remained in meditation until ten o'clock. The darkness of the warm Indian night was suddenly lit with a wondrous vision. Hallowed in splendour, the Divine Mother stood before me. Her face, tenderly smiling, was beauty itself. Always have I loved thee, ever shall I love thee. The celestial tones still ringing in the air, she disappeared. The sun on the following morning had hardly risen to an angle of decorum when I paid my second visit to Master Mahashai. Climbing the staircase in the house of poignant memories, I reached his fourth-floor room. The knob of the closed door was wrapped around with a cloth, a hint I felt that the saint desired privacy. As I stood irresolutely on the landing, the door was opened, by the master's welcoming hand. I knelt at his holy feet. In a playful mood, I wore a solemn mask over my face, hiding the divine elation. Sir, I have come, 
very early, I confess, for your message. Did the beloved mother say anything about me? Mischievous little sir. Not another remark would he make. Apparently my assumed gravity was unimpressive. Why so mysterious? So evasive? Do saints never speak plainly? Perhaps I was a little provoked. Must you test me? His calm eyes were full of understanding. Might I add a single word this morning to the assurance you received last night at ten o'clock from the beautiful mother herself? Master Mahashaya possessed control over the floodgates of my soul. Again I plunged prostrate at his feet. But this time my tears welled from a bliss and not a pain past bearing. Think you that your devotion did not touch the infinite mercy, the motherhood of God, which you have worshipped in forms both human and divine, could never fail to answer your forsaken cry. Who was this simple saint, whose least request to the universal spirit met with sweet acquiescence? His role in the world was humble, as befitted the greatest man of humility I ever knew. In this Amherst street house, Master Mahasha conducted a small high school for boys. No words of chastisement passed his lips. No rule and ferule maintained his discipline. Higher mathematics indeed was taught in these modest classrooms, and a chemistry of love absent from the textbooks. He spread his wisdom by spiritual contagion rather than by impermeable precept. Consumed by an unsophisticated passion for the Divine Mother, the saint no more demanded the outward forms of respect than a child. I am not your guru. He shall come a little later, he told me. Through his guidance, your experiences of the divine in terms of love and devotion will be translated into his terms of fathomless wisdom. Every late afternoon, I betook myself to Amherst Street. I sought Master Mahasaya's divine cup, so full that its drops daily overflowed on my being. Never before had I bowed in utter reverence. Now I have felt it an immeasurable privilege, even to tread the same ground that Master Mahasaya's footsteps sanctified. Sir, please wear this champak garland I have fashioned especially for you. I arrived one evening holding my chain of flowers, but shyly he drew away, repeatedly refusing the honour. Perceiving my hurt, he finally smiled consent. Since we are both devotees of the mother, you may put the garland on this bodily temple as offering to her who dwells within. His vast nature lacked space in which any egotistical consideration could gain foothold. Let us go tomorrow to Dakshineswar, to the temple of Kali, forever hallowed by my guru. The saint was a disciple of a Christ-like master, Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa. The four-mile journey on the following morning was taken by boat on the Ganges. We entered the nine-domed temple of Kali, where the figures of the Divine Mother and Shiva rest on a burnished silver lotus, its thousand petals meticulously chiselled. Master Mahasha beamed in enchantment. He was engaged in his inexhaustible romance with the Beloved. As he chanted her name, my enraptured heart seemed shattered like the lotus into a thousand pieces. We strolled later through the sacred precincts, halting in a tamarisk grove. The manner characteristically exuded by this tree was symbolic of the heavenly food Master Mahasha was bestowing. His divine invocations continued, 
I sat rigidly motionless on the grass amid the pink feathery tamarisk flowers. Temporarily absent from the body, I soared in a supernal visit. This was the first of many pilgrimages to Dakshineswar with the holy teacher. From him I learned the sweetness of God in the aspect of mother or divine mercy. The childlike saint found little appeal in the father aspect or divine justice. Stern, exacting, mathematical judgment was alien to his gentle nature. He can serve as an earthly prototype for the very angels of heaven, I thought fondly, watching him one day at his prayers. Without a breath of censure or criticism, he surveyed the world with eyes long familiar with the primal purity. His body, mind, speech and actions were effortlessly harmonized with his soul's simplicity. My master told me so. Shrinking from personal assertion, the saint usually ended his sage counsel with this tribute. So deep was his sense of identity with Sri Ramakrishna that Master Mahasha no longer considered his thoughts to be his own. Hand in hand, the saint and I walked one evening on the block of his school. My joy was dimmed by the arrival of a conceited acquaintance. He burdened us with a lengthy discourse. I see this man doesn't please you. The saint's whisper to me was unheard by the egotist, spellbound by his own monologue. I have spoken to Divine Mother about it. She realises our sad predicament. As soon as we get to yonder red house, she has promised to remind him of more urgent business. My eyes were glued to the sight of salvation. Reaching its red gate, the man unaccountably turned and departed, neither finishing his sentence nor saying goodbye. Peace descended on the assaulted air. Another day found me walking alone near the Harwa railway station. I stood for a moment by a temple, silently criticising a small group of men with drums and cymbals who were violently reciting a chant. How undevotionally they used the Lord's divine name in mechanical repetition, I reflected. Suddenly I was astonished to see Master Mahasaya rapidly approaching me. Sir, how come you here? The saint, ignoring my question, answered my thought. Isn't it true, little sir, that the beloved name sounds sweet from all lips, ignorant or wise? He passed his arm around me affectionately. I found myself carried on his magic carpet to the merciful presence. Would you like to see some bioscopes? This question one afternoon from the reclusive Master Mahashai was mystifying to me. The term was then used in India to signify motion pictures. I agreed, glad to be in his company in any circumstances. A brisk walk brought us to the garden fronting Calcutta University. My companion indicated a bench near the Goldigi or pond. Let us sit here for a few minutes. My master asked me to meditate whenever I saw an expanse of water. Here its placidity reminds us of the vast calmness of God. As all things can be reflected in water, so the whole universe is mirrored in the lake of the cosmic mind. So my Guru Deva often said. Soon we entered a university hall where a lecture was in progress. It proved abysmally dull, though varied occasionally by lantern slide illustrations equally uninteresting. So this is the kind of bioscope the master wanted me to see. My thought was impatient, yet I would not hurt the saint by revealing boredom in my face. But he leaned towards me confidentially. 
I see, little sir, that you don't like this bioscope. I have mentioned it to Divine Mother. She is in full sympathy with us both. She tells me that the electric lights will now go out and won't be relit until we have a chance to leave the room. As his whisper ended, the hall was plunged into darkness. The professor, whose strident voice had been stilled for a moment in astonishment, said, The electrical system of this hall appears to be defective. By this time, Master Mahashai and I were already across the threshold. Glancing back from the corridor, I saw that the hall was again illuminated. Little sir, you were disappointed in that bioscope, but I think you will like a different one. The saint and I were standing on the sidewalk in front of the university building. He gently slapped my chest over the heart. A transforming silence ensued, just as the modern talkies become inaudible motion pictures when the sound apparatus goes out of order, so the divine hand, by some strange miracle, stifled the earthly bustle. Pedestrians, as well as the passing trolley cars, automobiles, bullock carts and iron-wheeled hackney carriages were all in noiseless transit. As though possessing an omnipresent eye, I beheld the scenes that were behind me and to each side as easily as those in front. The whole spectacle of activity in that small section of Calcutta passed before me without a sound. Like a glow of fire dimly seen beneath a thin coat of ashes, a mellow luminescence permeated the panoramic view. My own body seemed nothing more than one of the many shadows, though it was motionless while the others flitted mutely to and fro. Several boys, friends of mine, approached and passed on. Though they had looked directly at me, it was without recognition. The unique pantomime brought me an inexpressible ecstasy. I drank deep from some blissful fount, Suddenly my chest received another soft blow from Master Mahashai. The pandemonium of the world burst upon my unwilling ears. I staggered, as though harshly awakened from a gossamer dream. The transcendental wine was removed beyond my reach. Little sir, I see you found the second bioscope to your liking. The saint was smiling. I started to kneel in gratitude on the ground before him. You can't do that to me now, he said. You know God is in your temple also. I won't let Divine Mother touch my feet through your hands. If anyone observed the unpretentious master and me as we slowly walked away from the crowded pavement, the onlooker surely suspected us of intoxication. I felt that the falling shades of evening were sympathetically drunk with God. Trying with poor words to do justice to his benignity, I wondered if Master Mahasha and others among the saints whose paths crossed mine knew that years later, in a western land, I would be writing about their lives as divine devotees. Their foreknowledge would not surprise me, nor I hope my readers, who have come thus far with me. Saints of all religions have attained God-realization through the simple concept of the cosmic beloved. Because the absolute is nirguna, without qualities, and asintia, inconceivable, human thought and yearning have ever personalized it as the universal mother. A combination of personal theism and the philosophy of the Absolute is an ancient achievement of Hindu thought, expounded in the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita. This reconciliation of opposites satisfies heart and head. Bhakti, devotion, 
and jnana, wisdom, are essentially one. Prapati, taking refuge in God, and Sharanagati, flinging oneself on the divine compassion, are really paths of the highest knowledge. The humility of Master Mahashai and of all other saints springs from a recognition of their total dependence, Seshatva, on the Lord as the sole life and judge. Because the very nature of God is bliss, the man in attunement with Him experiences a native boundless joy. The first of the passions of the soul and the will is joy. Devotees of all the ages approaching the mother in a childlike spirit testify that they find her ever at play with them. In Master Mahashai's life, the manifestations of divine play occurred on occasions important and unimportant. In God's eyes, nothing is large or small. Were it not for his perfect nicety in constructing the tiny atom, could the skies wear the proud structures of Vega, Arcturus, Distinctions of important and unimportant are surely unknown to the Lord, lest, for want of a pin, the cosmos collapse. Chapter 10 I Meet My Master, Sri Yukteswar Faith in God can produce any miracle, except one, passing an examination without study. Distastefully, I closed the inspirational book I had picked up in an idle moment. The writer's exception shows his complete lack of faith, I thought. Poor chap. He has great respect for the midnight oil. My promise to father had been that I would complete my high school studies. I cannot pretend to diligence. The passing months found me less frequently in the classroom than in secluded spots along the Calcutta bathing guts. The adjoining crematory grounds especially gruesome at night, are considered highly attractive by the yogi. He who would find the deathless essence must not be dismayed by a few unadorned skulls. Human inadequacy becomes clear in the gloomy abode of miscellaneous bones. My midnight vigils were thus of a different nature from the scholars. The week of final examinations at the Hindu high school was fast approaching, this interrogatory period, like the sepulchral haunts, inspires a well-known terror. My mind was nevertheless at peace. Braving the ghouls, I was exhuming a knowledge not found in lecture halls. But I lacked the art of Swami Pranabhananda, who easily appeared in two places at one time. My reasoning, though to many, alas, it seems illogic, was that the Lord would notice my dilemma and would extricate me from it. The devotee's irrationality springs from a thousand inexplicable demonstrations of God's instancy in trouble. Hello, Mukunda, I catch hardly a glimpse of you these days. A classmate accosted me one afternoon on Garpa Road. Hello, Nantu, my invisibility at school seems to have placed me there in a decidedly awkward position. I unburden myself under his friendly gaze. Nantu, who was a brilliant student, laughed heartily. My predicament was not without a comic aspect. You are utterly unprepared for the finals, he said. I suppose it's up to me to help you. The simple words, 
conveyed divine promise to my ears. With alacrity, I visited my friend's home. He kindly outlined the solutions to various problems he considered likely to be set by the instructors. These questions are the bait that will catch many trusting boys in the examination trap. Remember my answers, and you will escape without injury. The night was far gone when I departed. Bursting with unseasoned erudition, I devoutly prayed it would remain for the next few critical days. Nantu had coached me in my various subjects, but under press of time had forgotten my course in Sanskrit. Fervently, I reminded God of the oversight. I set out for a walk the next morning, assimilating my new knowledge to the rhythm of swinging footsteps. As I took a shortcut through the weeds of a corner lot, my eye fell on a few loose-printed sheets. A triumphant pounce. In my hand were Sanskrit verses. I sought out a pundit for aid in my stumbling interpretation. His rich voice filled the air with the edgeless, honeyed beauty of the ancient tongue. These exceptional stanzas cannot possibly be of aid in your Sanskrit test. The scholar dismissed them sceptically. But familiarity with that particular poem enabled me on the following day to pass the Sanskrit examination. Through the discerning help Nantu had given, I also attained the minimum grade for success in all my other subjects. Father was pleased that I had kept my word and concluded my secondary school course. My gratitude sped to the Lord, whose sole guidance I perceived in my visit to Nantu's home and in my walk by the unhabitual route of the debris-filled lot. Playfully, he had given a dual expression to his timely design for my rescue. I came across the discarded book, whose author had denied God precedence in the examination halls. I could not restrain a chuckle at my own silent comment. It would only add to this fellow's confusion if I were to tell him that divine meditation among the cadavers is a shortcut to a high school diploma. In my new dignity, I was now openly planning to leave home. Together with a young friend, Jitendra Mazumdar, I decided to join a Banaras hermitage, Sri Bharat Dharma Mahamandal, and receive its spiritual discipline. A desolation fell over me one day at the thought of separation from my family. Since mother's death, my affection had grown especially tender for my two younger brothers, Sananda and Bishnu, and for Tamu, my youngest sister. I rushed to my retreat, the little attic that had witnessed so many scenes in my turbulent sadhana. After a two-hour flood of tears, I felt singularly transformed, as by some alchemical cleanser. All attachment disappeared. My resolution to seek God as the friend of friends became adamantine. I make one last plea. Father was distressed as I stood before him for his blessing. Do not forsake me and your grieving brothers and sisters. Revered Father, how can I tell my love for you? But even greater is my love for the Heavenly Father, who has given me the gift of a perfect Father on earth. Let me go, that I some day return with a more divine understanding. With reluctant parental consent, I set out to join Jitendra, already in Banaras at the Hermitage. 
On my arrival, the young head Swami, Dayananda, greeted me cordially. Tall and thin, of thoughtful mien, he impressed me favourably. His fair face had a Buddha-like composure. I was pleased that my new home possessed an attic where I managed to spend the dawn and morning hours. The ashram members, knowing little of meditation practices, thought I should employ my whole time in organisational duties. They gave me praise for my afternoon work in their office. Don't try to catch God so soon. This ridicule from a fellow resident accompanied one of my early departures towards the attic. I went to Dayananda, busy in his small sanctum overlooking the Ganges. Swamiji, I don't understand what is required of me here. I am seeking direct perception of God. Without Him, I cannot be satisfied with affiliation or creed or performance of good works. The orange-robed ecclesiastic gave me an affectionate pat. Staging a mock rebuke, he admonished a few nearby disciples. Don't bother Mukunda. He will learn our ways. I politely concealed my doubt. The students left the room, not noticeably bent with their chastisement. Dayananda had further words for me. Mukunda, I see that your father is regularly sending you money. Please return it to him. You require none here. A second injunction for your discipline concerns food. Even when you feel hunger, do not mention it. Whether famishment gleamed in my eye, I know not. That I was hungry, I knew only too well. The invariable hour for the first hermitage meal was twelve noon. I had been accustomed in my own home to a large breakfast at nine o'clock. The three-hour gap became daily more interminable. Gone were the Calcutta years where I could rebuke the cook for a ten-minute delay. Now I tried to control my appetite. I completed a twenty-four-hour fast. With double zest, I awaited the following midday. Dianandaji's train is late. We're not going to eat until he arrives. Jitendra brought me this devastating news. As a gesture of welcome to the Swami, who had been absent for two weeks, many delicacies were in readiness. An appetizing aroma filled the air, nothing else offering what could be swallowed except my pride in yesterday's fast. Lord, hasten the train. The heavenly provider, I thought, could hardly have been included in the interdiction with which Dayananda had silenced me. Divine attention was elsewhere, however. The plodding clock covered the hours. Darkness was descending as our leader entered the door. My greeting was one of sheer joy. Dianandaji will bathe and meditate before we can serve food. Jitendra approached me again as a bird of ill omen. I was near collapse. My young stomach, new to deprivation, protested with gnawing vigour. Pictures I had seen of famine victims passed wraith-like before me. The next Banaras death from starvation is due at once in this hermitage, I thought. Impending doom was averted at nine o'clock. Ambrosial summons. In memory that evening meal is vivid, as one of life's perfect hours. Intense absorption had not prevented me from observing that Dayananda ate absent-mindedly, he was apparently above my gross pleasures. Swamiji, weren't you hungry? Happily surfeited, I was alone with the leader in his study. Oh, yes, he said. I spent the last four days without food or drink. I never eat on trains, 
filled with the heterogeneous vibrations of worldly people. Strictly, I observe the Shastric rules for monks of my particular order. Certain problems of our organizational work lie on my mind. Tonight at home I neglected my dinner. What's the hurry? Tomorrow I make it a point to have a proper meal. He laughed merrily. Shame spread within me like a suffocation, but the past day of my torture was not easily forgotten. I ventured a further remark. Swamiji, I am puzzled about following your instruction. Suppose I never ask for food and nobody gives me any. I should starve to death. Die, then. This alarming counsel split the air. Die, if you must, Mukunda. Never believe that you live by the power of food and not by the power of God. He who has created every form of nourishment, he who has bestowed appetite, will inevitably see that his devotee is maintained. Do not imagine that rice sustains you, nor that money or men support you. Could they aid if the Lord withdraws your life-breath? They are his instruments merely. Is it by any skill of yours that food digests in your stomach? Use the sword of your discrimination, Mukunda. Cut through the chains of agency and perceive the single cause. I found his incisive words entering some deep marrow. Gone was an age-old delusion by which bodily imperatives outwit the soul. Then and there I tasted the spirit's all-sufficiency. In how many strange cities in my later life of ceaseless travel did occasion arise to prove the serviceability of this lesson in a Banaras hermitage? The sole treasure which had accompanied me from Calcutta was the sadhu's silver amulet, bequeathed to me by mother. Guarding it for years, I now had it carefully hidden in my ashram room. To renew my joy in the talismanic testimony, one morning I opened the locked box, the sealed covering untouched. Lo, the amulet was gone. Mournfully I tore open the envelope, and made unmistakably sure. It had vanished, in accordance with the sadhu's prediction, into the ether whence he had summoned it. My relationship with Dayananda's followers grew steadily worse. The household was alienated, hurt by my determined aloofness. My strict adherence to meditation on the very ideal for which I had left home and all worldly ambitions called forth shallow criticism from all sides. Torn by spiritual anguish, I entered the attic one dawn, resolved to pray until an answer was vouchsafed. Merciful Mother of the Universe, teach me thyself through visions, or through a guru sent by thee. The passing hours found my sobbing pleas without response. Suddenly I felt lifted, as though bodily to a sphere uncircumscribed. Thy Master cometh today. A divine womanly voice came from everywhere and nowhere. The supernal experience was shattered by a shout from a definite locale. A young priest, nicknamed Habu, was calling me from the downstairs kitchen. Mukunda, enough of meditation, you're needed for an errand. Another day I might have replied impatiently. Now I wiped my tear-swollen face and meekly obeyed the summons. Together, Habu and I set out for a distant marketplace in the Bengali section of Banaras.
The ungentle Indian sun was not yet at zenith as we made our purchases in the bazaars. We pushed our way through the colourful medley of housewives, guides, priests, simply clad widows, dignified Brahmins, and ubiquitous holy bulls. As Habu and I moved on, I turned my head to survey a narrow, inconspicuous lane. A Christ-like man, in the ochre robes of a Swami, stood motionless at the end of the lane. Instantly and anciently familiar he seemed, for a trice my gaze fed hungrily, then doubt assailed me. You are confusing this wandering monk with someone known to you, I thought. Dreamer, walk on. After ten minutes I felt heavy numbness in my feet. As though turned to stone, they were unable to carry me farther. Laboriously I turned around. My feet regained normality. I faced the opposite direction. Again, the curious weight oppressed me. The saint is magnetically drawing me to him. With this thought, I heaped my parcels into the arms of Habu. He had been observing my erratic footwork with amazement, and now burst into laughter. What ails you? Are you crazy? My tumultuous emotion prevented any retort. I sped silently away. Retracing my steps as though wing-shod, I reached the narrow lane. My quick glance revealed the quiet figure, steadily gazing in my direction. A few eager steps, and I was at his feet. Guru Deva. The divine face was the one I had seen in a thousand visions. These halcyon eyes, in a leonine head, with pointed beard and flowing locks, had oft peered through the gloom of my nocturnal reveries, holding a promise I had not fully understood. Oh, my own, you have come to me. My guru uttered the words again and again in Bengali, his voice tremulous with joy. How many years have I waited for you? We entered a oneness of silence. Words seemed the rankest superfluities. Eloquence flowed in soundless chant from the heart of master to disciple. With an antenna of irrefragible insight, I sensed that my guru knew God and would lead me to him. The obscuration of this life disappeared in a fragile dawn of prenatal memories. Dramatic time. Past, present and future are its cycling scenes. This was not the first son to find me at these holy feet. My hand in his, my guru led me to his temporary residence in the Rana Mahal section of the city. His athletic figure moved with firm tread. Tall, erect, about fifty-five at this time, he was active and vigorous as a young man. His dark eyes were large, beautiful with plumless wisdom. Slightly curly hair softened a face of striking power. Strength mingled subtly with gentleness. As we made our way to the stone balcony of a house overlooking the Ganges, he said affectionately, I shall give you my hermitages and all I possess. Sir, I come for wisdom and God-realization. Those are your treasure troves I am after. The swift Indian twilight had dropped its half-curtain before my master spoke again. His eyes held unfathomable tenderness.
I give you my unconditional love. Precious words. A quarter century elapsed before I had another auricular proof of his love. His lips were strange to ardour. Silence suited his oceanic heart. Will you give me the same unconditional love? He gazed at me with childlike trust. I will love you eternally, Gurudeva. Ordinary love is selfish, darkly rooted in desires and satisfactions. Divine love is without condition, without boundary, without change. The flux of the human heart is gone forever at the transfixing touch of pure love. He added humbly, If you ever find me falling from a state of God-realization, please promise to put my head on your lap and help to bring me back to the cosmic beloved we both worship. He rose then in the gathering darkness and guided me to an inner room. As we ate mangoes and almond sweetmeats, he unobtrusively wove into his conversation an intimate knowledge of my nature. I was awestruck at the grandeur of his wisdom, exquisitely blended with an innate humility. Do not grieve for your amulet. It has served its purpose. Like a divine mirror, my guru apparently had caught a reflection of my whole life. The living reality of your presence, Master, is joy beyond any symbol. It is time for a change, inasmuch as you are unhappily situated in the hermitage. I had made no references to my life. They now seemed superfluous. By his natural, unemphatic manner, I understood that he wished no astonished ejaculations at his clairvoyance. You should go back to Calcutta. Why exclude relatives from your love of humanity? His suggestion dismayed me. My family was predicting my return, though I had been unresponsive to many pleas by letter. Let the young bird fly in the metaphysical skies, Ananta had remarked. His wings will tire in the heavy atmosphere. We shall yet see him swoop toward home, fold his pinions, and humbly rest in our family nest. This discouraging simile fresh in my mind, I was determined to do no swooping in the direction of Calcutta. Sir, I am not returning home, but I will follow you anywhere. Please give me your address and your name. Swami Sri Yukteswar Giri, my chief hermitage is in Serampore, on Rai Ghat Lane. I am visiting my mother here for only a few days. I wondered at God's intricate play with his devotees. Serampore is but twelve miles from Calcutta. Yet in those regions I had never caught a glimpse of my guru. We had had to travel for our meeting to the ancient city of Kashi, Banaras, hallowed by memories of Lahiri Mahashai. Here too were the feet of Buddha, Shankaracharya, and many other yogi Christs had blessed the soil. You will come to me in four weeks. For the first time, Sri Yukteswar's voice was stern. Now that I have told you of my eternal affection, and have shown my happiness at finding you, you feel free to disregard my request. The next time we meet, 
you shall have to reawaken my interest. I won't easily accept you as a disciple. There must be complete surrender by obedience to my strict training. I remained obstinately silent. My guru quickly penetrated my difficulty. Do you think your relatives will laugh at you? I will not return. You will return in thirty days. Never. The controversial tension unrelieved, I bowed reverently at his feet and departed. Walking in the midnight darkness towards the hermitage, I wondered why the miraculous meeting had ended on an inharmonious note. The dual scales of Maya that balance every joy with a grief. My young heart was not yet malleable to the transforming fingers of my guru. The next morning I noticed increased hostility in the attitude of the hermitage members. They spiked my days with invariable rudeness. Three weeks passed. Dayananda then left the ashram to attend a conference in Bombay. Pandemonium broke over my hapless head. Mukunda is a parasite, accepting hermitage hospitality without making proper return. Overhearing this remark, I regretted for the first time that I had obeyed the request to send back my money to father. With a heavy heart, I sought out my sole friend, Jitendra. I am leaving. Please convey my respectful regrets to Dayanandaji when he returns. I will leave also. My attempts to meditate here meet with no more favour than your own. Jitendra spoke with determination. I have met a Christ-like saint. Let us visit him in Serampore. And so the bird, prepared to swoop, perilously close to Calcutta. Chapter 11 Two Penniless Boys in Brindaban It would serve you right if father disinherited you, Mukunda. How foolishly you are throwing away your life! An elder brother Salmon was assaulting my ears. Jitendra and I, fresh from the train, a figure of speech merely, we were covered with dust, had just arrived at the home of Ananta, recently transferred from Calcutta to the ancient city of Agra. Brother was a supervising accountant for the public works department of the government. You well know, Ananta, I seek my inheritance from the Heavenly Father. Money first, God can come later, who knows, life may be too long. God first, money is his slave, who can tell, life may be too short. My retort was summoned by the exigencies of the moment and held no presentiment. Alas, Ananta's life did come to an early close. Wisdom from the hermitage, I suppose. But I see you have left Benares. Ananta's eyes gleamed with satisfaction. He was yet hoping to secure my pinions in the family nest. My sojourn in Benares was not in vain. I found there everything my heart had been longing for. You may be sure it was not your pundit or his son. Ananta joined me in reminiscent laughter. He had had to admit that the Benares clairvoyant he selected had proved a short-sighted one. What are your plans, my wandering brother? Jitendra persuaded me to Agra. We shall view the beauties of the Taj Mahal here, I explained. Then we are going to my newly found guru, who has a hermitage in Serampore. Ananta hospitably arranged for our comfort. Several times during the evening I noticed his eyes fixed on me reflectively. 
I know that look, I thought. A plot is brewing. The denouement took place during our early breakfast. So, you feel quite independent of father's wealth? Ananta's gaze was innocent as he resumed the barbs of yesterday's conversation. I am conscious of my dependence on God. Words are cheap. Life has shielded you thus far. What a plight if you were forced to look to the invisible hand for your food and shelter. You would soon be begging on the streets. Never. I would not put faith in passers-by rather than in God. He can devise for his devotee a thousand resources besides the begging bowl. More rhetoric. Suppose I suggest that your vaunted philosophy be put to a test in this tangible world. I would agree. Do you confine God to a speculative world? We shall see. Today you shall have opportunity either to enlarge or to confirm my own views. Ananta paused for a dramatic moment, then spoke slowly and seriously. I propose that I send you and your fellow disciple Jitendra this morning to the nearby city of Brindaban. You must not take a single rupee. You must not beg, either for food or money. You must not reveal your predicament to anyone. You must not go without your meals. And you must not be stranded in Brindaban. If you return to my bungalow here before twelve o'clock tonight, without having broken any rule of the test, I shall be the most astonished man in Agra. I accept the challenge. No hesitation was in my words or in my heart. Grateful memories flashed of the instant beneficence, my healing of deadly cholera through an appeal to Lahiri Mahashai's picture, the playful gift of the two kites on the Lahore roof, the opportune amulet amidst my discouragement in Bareilly, the decisive message through the sadhu outside the courtyard of the pundit's house in Benares, the vision of Divine Mother and her majestic words of love, her swift heed through Master Mahashai to my trifling embarrassments, the last-minute guidance that had materialised my high school diploma, and the ultimate boon, my living master from the mist of my lifelong dreams. Never would I admit my philosophy unequal to any tussle on the world's harsh proving grounds. Your willingness does you credit. I'll escort you to the train at once, Ananta said. He turned to the open-mouthed Jitendra. You must go along, as a witness and very likely a fellow victim. Half an hour later, Jitendra and I were in possession of one-way tickets for the trip. We submitted, in a secluded corner of the station, to a search of our persons. Ananta was quickly satisfied that we were carrying no hidden hoard. Our simple dotis concealed nothing more than was necessary. As faith invaded the serious realms of finance, my friend spoke protestingly. Ananta, give me one or two rupees as a safeguard, then I can telegraph you in case of misfortune. Jitendra! My ejaculation was sharply reproachful. I will not proceed with the test if you take any money as final security. There is something reassuring about the chink of coins, Jitendra said no more, as I regarded him sternly. Mukunda, I am not heartless. A hint of humility had crept into Ananta's voice. It may be that his conscience was smiting him, perhaps for sending two penniless boys to a strange city, perhaps for his own religious scepticism. 
If by any chance or grace you pass successfully through the Brindaban ordeal, I shall ask you to initiate me as your disciple. This promise had a certain irregularity in keeping with the unconventional occasion. The eldest brother in an Indian family seldom bows before his juniors. He receives respect and obedience, second only to a father. But no time remained for my comment. Our train was at point of departure. Jitendra maintained a lugubrious silence as the train covered the miles. Finally he bestirred himself. Leaning over, he pinched me painfully on a tender spot. I see no sign that God is going to supply our next meal. Be quiet, doubting Thomas. The Lord is working with us. Can you also arrange that he hurry? Already I am famished, merely at the prospect before us. I left Banaras to view the Taj Mausoleum, not to enter my own. Cheer up, Jitendra. Are we not to have our first glimpse of the sacred wonders of Brindaban? I am in deep joy at the thought of treading the ground hallowed by the feet of Lord Krishna. The door of our compartment opened. Two men seated themselves. The next train stop would be the last. Young lads, do you have friends in Brindaban? The stranger opposite me was taking a surprising interest. None of your business. Rudely, I averted my gaze. You are probably flying away from your families under the enchantment of the stealer of hearts. I am of devotional temperament myself. I will make it my positive duty to see that you receive food and shelter from this overpowering heat. No, sir, let us alone. You are very kind. But you are mistaken in judging us to be truants from home. No further conversation ensued. The train came to a halt. As Jitendra and I descended to the platform, our chance companions linked arms with us and summoned a horse-cab. We are lit before a stately hermitage, set amidst the evergreen trees of well-kept grounds. Our benefactors were evidently known here. A smiling lad led us without comment to a parlour. We were soon joined by an elderly woman of dignified bearing. Gorima. The princess could not come, one of the men addressed the ashram hostess. At the last moment their plans went awry, they send deep regrets, but we have brought two other guests. As soon as we met them on the train, I felt drawn to them as devotees of Lord Krishna. Goodbye, young friends. Our two acquaintances walked to the door. We shall meet again, if God be willing. You are welcome here. Gauri Ma smiled in motherly fashion. You could not have come on a better day. I was expecting two royal patrons of this hermitage. What a shame if my cooking had found none to appreciate it. The pleasant words had a surprising effect on Jitendra. He burst into tears. The prospect he had feared in Brindaban was turning out as royal entertainment. His sudden mental adjustment proved too much for him. Our hostess looked at him with curiosity, but without remark. Perhaps she was familiar with adolescent quirks. Lunch was announced. Garima led the way to a dining patio, spicy with savoury odours. She vanished into an adjoining kitchen. I had been premeditating this moment. Selecting the appropriate spot on Jitendra's body, I gave him a pinch as painful as the one he'd given me on the train. Doubting Thomas? The Lord works... In a hurry, too. The hostess re-entered with a punkah. 
She steadily fanned us in the oriental fashion as we squatted on ornate blanket seats. Ashram disciples passed to and fro with some thirty courses. Rather than meal, the description may only be sumptuous repast. Since arriving on this planet, Jitendra and I had never before tasted such delicacies. Dishes fit for princes indeed, honoured mother. What your royal patrons could have found more urgent than attending this banquet, I cannot imagine. You have given us a memory for a lifetime. Silenced as we were by Ananta's requirement, we could not explain to the gracious lady that our thanks held a double significance. Our sincerity at least was patent. We departed with her blessing and an attractive invitation to revisit the hermitage. The heat outdoors was merciless. My friend and I made for the shelter of a lordly kadamba tree at the ashram gate. Sharp words followed. Once again, Jitendra was beset with misgivings. A fine mess you've got me into. Our luncheon was only accidental good fortune. How can we see the sights of this city without a single pisa between us? And how on earth are you going to take me back to Ananta's place? You forget God quickly, now that your stomach is filled. My words, not bitter, were accusatory. How short is human memory for divine favours? No man lives who has not seen some of his prayers granted. I am not likely to forget my folly in venturing out with a madcap like you. Be quiet, Jitendra. The same Lord who fed us will show us Brindaban and return us to Agra. A slight young man of pleasing countenance approached at rapid pace. Halting under our tree, he bowed before me. Dear friend, you and your companion must be strangers here. Permit me to be your host and guide. It is scarcely possible for an Indian to pale, but Jitendra's face was suddenly sickly. I politely declined the offer. You are surely not banishing me. The stranger's alarm would have been comic in any other circumstances. Why not? You are my guru. His eyes sought mine trustfully. During my midday devotions, the blessed Lord Krishna appeared in a vision. He showed me two forsaken figures under this very tree. One face was yours, my master. Often have I seen it in meditation. What joy if you accept my humble services. I too am glad you have found me. Neither God nor man has forsaken us. Though I was motionless, smiling at the eager face before me, an inward obeisance cast me at the divine feet. Dear friends, will you not honour my home with a visit? You are kind, but the plan is unfeasible. Already we are guests of my brother in Agra. At least give me memories of touring Brindaban with you. I gladly consented. The young man, who said his name was Pratap Chatterjee, hailed a horse carriage. We visited Madana Mohana Temple and the other Krishna shrines. Night descended before we had finished our temple devotions. Excuse me while I get Sandesh, an Indian sweetmeat. Pratap entered a shop near the railway station. Jitendra and I sauntered along the wide street, crowded now in the comparative coolness. Our friend was absent for some time, but finally returned with gifts of many sweetmeats. Please allow me to gain this religious merit. Pratap smiled pleadingly 
as he held out a bundle of rupee notes and two tickets, just purchased to Agra. The reverence of my acceptance was for the invisible hand. Scoffed at by Ananta, had its bounty not far exceeded necessity, we sought out a secluded spot near the station. Pratap, I will instruct you in the Kriya of Lahiri Mahashai, the greatest yogi of modern times. His technique will be your guru. The initiation was concluded in half an hour. Kriya is your chintamani, I told the new student. The technique, which, as you see, is simple, embodies the art of quickening man's spiritual evolution. Hindu scriptures teach that the incarnating ego requires a million years to obtain liberation from maya. This natural period is greatly shortened through Kriya Yoga. Just as plant growth can be accelerated far beyond its normal rate, as Jagadish Chandra Bose has demonstrated, so man's psychological development also can be speeded by scientific means. Be faithful in your practice. You will approach the guru of all gurus. I am transported to find this yogic key long sought, Pratap spoke thoughtfully. Its unshackling effect on my sensory bonds will free me for higher spheres. The vision today of Lord Krishna could only mean my highest good. We sat a while in silent understanding, then walked slowly to the station. Joy was within me as I boarded the train, but this was Jitendra's day for tears. My affectionate farewell to Pratap had been punctuated by stifled sobs from both my companions. The journey once more found Jitendra in a welter of grief, not for himself this time, but against himself. How shallow my trust! My heart has been stone. Never in future shall I doubt God's protection. Midnight was approaching. The two Cinderellas, sent forth penniless, entered Ananta's bedroom. Just as he had lightly predicted, his face was a study in astonishment. Silently, I showered a table with rupee notes. Jitendra, the truth, Ananta's tone was jocular, has not this youngster been staging a hold-up? But as the tale was unfolded, my brother turned sober, then solemn. The law of demand and supply reaches into subtler realms than I had supposed. Ananta spoke with a spiritual enthusiasm never before noticeable. I understand for the first time your indifference to the vaults and vulgar accumulations of the world. Late as it was, my brother insisted that he receive Diksha into Kriya Yoga. The Guru Mukunda had to shoulder in one night the responsibility of two unsought disciples. Breakfast on the following day was eaten in a harmony that had been absent on the preceding morning. I smiled at Chitendra. You shall not be cheated of the Taj. Let us view it before starting for Sarampur. Bidding farewell to Ananta, my friend and I were soon before the glory of Agra, the Taj Mahal. White, marble, dazzling in the sun, it stands a vision of pure symmetry. The perfect setting is dark cypress, glossy lawn and tranquil lagoon. The interior is exquisite, 
with lace-like carvings inlaid with semi-precious stones. Delicate wreaths and scrolls emerge intricately from marbles, brown and violet. Illumination from the dome falls on the cenotaphs of Emperor Shah Jahan and Mumtaz-e-Mahal, queen of his realm and his heart. Enough of sightseeing. I was longing for my guru. Jitendra and I were shortly travelling south by train toward Bengal. Mukunda, I have not seen my family for months. I have changed my mind. Perhaps later I shall visit your master in Serampore. My friend, who may mildly be described as vacillating in temperament, left me in Calcutta. By local train, I soon reached Serampore, twelve miles to the north. A throb of wonderment stole over me as I realised that twenty-eight days had elapsed since the Banaras meeting with my guru. You will come to me in four weeks. Here I was, heart pounding, standing within his courtyard on quiet Rai Ghat Lane. I entered for the first time the hermitage where I was to spend the best part of the next ten years with India's Gyan Avatar, incarnation of wisdom.